Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. others, which doesn't mean that we don't contribute distinctively to those conversations, that we don't help others out, that we can only repeat what we've heard, but our thought is always dialogic. It's inspiring to read about people who thrashed around a lot in their 20s and 30s figuring out what they wanted to say, but had one another to talk with, to test their ideas with, and to work toward the things that they dimly saw, they aspired to see better than they did. That is the voice of Professor Benjamin Lipscomb, who is our guest of honor today on the podcast. He is the author of a recent book, a fascinating book that I highly recommend called The Women Are Up to Something, How Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, and Iris Murdoch Revolutionized Ethics. Uh, As soon as I saw this book uh, pop up um, in my... uh, and maybe it was in my Twitter feed or something like that. People were actually, I think it was because people were discussing uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, who uh, had seven children, and her advice uh, to, to fellow academics, uh, other mothers, was to just say that dirt doesn't matter. So I'm taking that to heart. But um, maybe you've heard of Elizabeth Anscombe. She famously had a debate with C.S. Lewis while she was at Oxford. Um, so maybe you've heard of that. Uh, Philippa Foote is responsible for the uh, trolley experiment. If you took any um, classes in uh, introductory philosophy, you probably encountered this uh, this famous sort of um, theoretical experiment where uh, you 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 can decide whether you or not you save uh, a group of people or one person by changing the track uh, that the train is moving on. Uh, sort of a, a utilitarian question going on there. Um, Iris Murdoch, uh, she, she's written some beautiful novels. Um, I haven't read them. My, my husband has read, uh, read, read one or two and always speaks very highly of them. Um, and uh, I'd like to re- read her novels. Um, I'm very interested just in the fact that she was a philosopher and a novelist. A uh, very interesting person, and I was not really at all familiar with Mary Midgley, but um, she has some very interesting things to say about uh, about human beings as animals and and understanding uh, human beings biologically. So all these women so different, and they found themselves in Oxford together as young women, and uh, they they they're incredibly different. I mean, different backgrounds. Um, different uh, in, the, in their belief systems, uh, different in the way their lives would go on to develop, and yet they found uh, such, such energy and um, camaraderie in debating these ideas, and especially debating the idea um, of what is the nature, uh, what is the nature of truth, and can we look at the events of the 20th century, specifically something like the Holocaust, 
and say, um, this is evil in all times, in all, in all eras, uh, how can we say that this is always wrong? Because at the time, much as it is today in the academy and at the culture at large, uh, it, w- it was really a relativistic society and, um, and ethics was just something that was sort of a, a, a personal, um, a personal uh, choice about how you lived your life. And, and these, uh, these women really wanted to get down to, no, we, we really need to be able to, to talk about this uh, a, bit, a bit more um, intelligently. Um, we can't just keep debating sort of the meaning of words sort of at this, at this uh, abstract level. We really need to get into the brass tacks here. We need to get down to a practical level and really discuss the, the huge implications that these ideas have on people's lives. So I could go on and on and on about this, but uh, I, I will let the, the interview and, um, and uh, Ben uh, do the talking for us. He was, he was a, a wonderful guest. I'm so glad he agreed to come on the podcast. And uh, I highly recommend um, recommend the book. Um, as I always do, I do include a, a recommendation at the at the end of our interview. Uh, besides besides the book, so you can you can stay tuned to that. I will I will end the episode with another recommendation. But um, yeah, I, I was really I was really thrilled to have him on, and and we really had a, had a very engaging conversation. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope you are inspired to to learn more about about this group of women, and uh, maybe ask some big big questions yourself uh, yourselves about about the nature of truth, of ethics, of uh, what it means to be a, a ethical, moral human being living in this world. Um, as, uh, as you know, I'm Katie Marquette. This is Born of Wonder. On this podcast, we discuss anything and everything that inspires wonder and awe in the world. You can find me at bornofwonder.com. You can follow me on Instagram at bornofwonder. You can support me in, on Patreon uh, for $2 a month. Buy me a coffee. <laughs> help me, um, help me uh, pay for my subscriptions that I need to in order to, uh, to put this podcast out. I'm working on a thank you for all of you ha- who have already become patrons. Excited to share that with you. It's just a little thing, but I hope that, that you'll enjoy it. And I want to eventually uh, create some more tiers, but I, I w- would want to make sure that I, uh, that I have something uh, more to, to offer. You know, I, I, would, I would maybe ha- want to have some extra bonus episodes or uh, something like that, uh, and you can always let me know maybe what would what would uh, appeal to you. I would want to make it worth your while. But without further ado, let's get going on today's interview uh, with Benjamin Lipscomb, the author of The Women Are Up to Something. I hope you enjoy. Why don't we just, I'd love to get, um, I should have just messaged you for an introduction, but it tends to be better when uh, you get to introduce yourself anyway uh, and highlight what you want to. So uh, would you like to introduce yourself um, to our listeners? Sure. I'm Benjamin Lipscomb. I teach philosophy and direct the honors programs at a small Christian liberal arts college in rural Western New York, Houghton College. And I've been living here uh, with uh, my wife, who teaches English literature here, and uh, my kids and cats and chickens mm-hmm. for 20 years. Um, and for the last 10, 12 of those years, I've been slowly chipping away at uh, this group biography that got hold of me, the idea of it, uh, back in the late aughts. Interesting. I, I also live on a, a small farmette, so... Um and it always feels a little chaotic. So <laughs> good for you uh, managing all those animals and getting this book written and teaching as well. That's amazing. 
so what what was the um, the inspiration? How were you first? Was there one of these women that was introduced to you initially, or um, were you introduced to them as a group? What uh, how, how did you come across them? Pretty close to all at once. Uh, my graduate advisor, David Solomon at the University of Notre Dame, in his ethical theory survey that all of the grad students had to take part of getting adjusted to the fields, uh, aware of what's going on in different parts of philosophy. He taught Anscombe and Foote and Murdoch, who are the three that are most common, commonly taught and paid attention to uh, in professional philosophical circles. Uh, so he gave me my first introduction to them. That would have been, I don't know, 1997. Uh, and then later on, he was also responsible for introducing me to Midgley that I was finding myself particularly drawn to some of the things that Anscombe had to say about moral law mm -hmm. and the concept of moral law. And my dissertation was heading in that direction. Um, but I was also an appreciative reader of Foote and Murdoch. And he said, I think you should look also at Mary Midgley. Have you heard of her? Have you read her? And uh, he got me looking at uh, some of her work, particularly um, her books, Beast of Man and Wickedness, which introduced me to a way of thinking about ethics in terms of our shared nature with other animals. Mm -hmm. um, the thought I was pursuing that moral law is a little bit like, I don't know, God's animal training for human <laughs> beings. And um, he said, Mitchley has some things to say about our animality that I think you might find instructive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more um, in depth, I hope, about that with Mitchley. Um, because I was also very interested in that, uh, and and also like the influence of people like Jane Goodall and uh, these these changing conceptions of how we study animals uh, as human beings and our sort of shared experiences, I think have a lot to offer um, when talking about ethics. So uh, I hope we get to chat a little bit more about that. But before we go down that rabbit hole, uh, just a let's stay a little broader first. Um, so each of these women is so unique um, in their personal life experiences, but also in their individual philosophies. Um, but why What? Why are they a group? Why was this, um, what, what makes them uh, have a shared understanding of the world or did they have a shared understanding of the world? They have some points in common. And then I think they've, feel their way in conversation with one another and with some others to something uh, like a shared position that there's no point at which you can look at them and see, ah, they've come together around this manifesto, like some groups of typically male <laughs> scholars in the 20th century have issued these manifestos. Um, and it's not like that where they all realize there's this doctrine that we hold in common and we will stand against the world and defend it. Mm -hmm. Rather, they're friends from their undergraduate years. This story is so much about friendship and time and place and shared activity, shared life. As they have exchanges with one another, they realize there are some things that they're impatient with in the philosophy of their day, that there's things that their male contemporaries are committed to, sometimes in an unexamined way, that they think that can't be right. But 
as you know from the book, it's a series of stepwise movements initially to just seeing that the dogmas of the real contemporaries are not inevitable and inescapable, and then beginning to try out what alternatives might look like and then developing them. Yeah, I, I really, um, you're right that this is a portrait of, of a friendship, not just, uh, not, not just sort of their ideas, but the, that there's this sort of uh, beautiful concept that people can meet at that sort of pivotal point in, uh, in their academic lives. And as they sort of diverge uh, into different life experiences, they will always sort of have that shared uh, interest in uh, at least reaching toward the truth, even if they find themselves uh, reaching different truths. So um, that definitely seems to be like that is uh, that they were all uh, challenged by each other. I, I loved the when you would sort of paint the scene of what a, a typical meeting would look like and sort of the energy and uh, and commitment they all had to discussing these ideas. Um, so you so you brought up sort of what was going on at the time, what they were reacting to. So what was uh, what was the culture like at Oxford and in philosophic uh, academic circles uh, at the time in the wake of World War II? Uh, we're grappling with a lot of a hu huge ethical uh, questions. So so what was uh, what was the scene like? Sure, I think I want to start a little bit before World War II because the dogma that they most had to resist is one that takes holds in the early 20th century and has uh, origins further back. But um, if you've read uh, C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, mm -hmm. um, he talks about this textbook for high schoolers that without argument presents to students uh, the idea that of course, evaluative language is just a kind of glaze we paint on a value-free, valueless world, just our projection, um, that there isn't any such thing in a properly modern, scientific, respectable uh, view of things as right and wrong, good or bad, better or worse. That's all how we subjectively respond uh, to the world. So that's in place already and has become, as I've called it a couple of times, a dogma uh, by mm -hmm. the time these women begin their undergraduate training at the very end of the 1930s. Uh, that's taken for granted on most sides. After the war, there's an interesting pivot, not away from that dogma, uh, far otherwise, but the style of philosophy becomes wondering what uh, the right word uh, is that I want here. Ordinary language philosophy is the term for what becomes dominant at Oxford in the mid to late 1940s and through the 1950s. And it is a practice of scholars who had many of them been classicists and who were very good at, very concerned with picking apart the tiny subtle implications of ordinary English usage and seeing what's conceptually implicit in our ordinary discourse. Um, there's something I think really admirable about this. Uh, I can see the attraction, the idea of you're gonna get something so patiently, painstakingly right uh, 
no matter how small it is. But in its mm -hmm. smallness, it too looked away from questions of ethics and value. Ethics was a kind of a despised subject. Uh, philosophy of language became everything and a certain kind of really picky, persnickety philosophy of language that didn't leave room for large questions about what are the best ways for human beings to live? Uh, mm -hmm. What do we owe to one another? How should we understand the place of value in the world? And so these women that I'm writing about found themselves marginalized in more than one sense as women in a male dominated field and institution, but also as people who thought there were more important things to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, maybe anybody who's, uh, I mean, an undergrad, but just any, uh, any sort of academic training beyond sometimes you can get very frustrated sort of with uh how theoretical things become so quickly. I mean, it, it's great to debate the meaning of a word for an hour, but there are like implications beyond that. Um, and I think that sometimes that's people's frustration with a philosophy course is that uh, you sort of get into the weeds and never get out of them. So I admired these women for saying, okay, that's all well and good, but they're how, what does this look like as a lived uh, life experience, which seemed to not be as a, as of interest in uh, in the academy at the time, I, I know you brought up um, that sort of there was just this this sort of frenzy about if somebody came out with a paper or something that uh, everybody would want to read it so closely to find you know some sort of contradiction in the language that they could pick apart and sometimes the uh, the bigger ideas were lost in the process. Um, so you you uh, alluded to this, but um, can you just say like what exactly was it like? Um, to, to be a woman at this time uh, in the academy. Um, some of them, I mean, they all taught at different points, but I, did Midgley teach? She did. Um, she had a position at uh, uh, Reading University okay. uh, right at the cusp of the 1950s, uh, right before she got married. And mm -hmm. then later on, uh, after her boys were into secondary school, uh, she picked up some teaching at the University of Newcastle and eventually became one of the pillars of that department. Okay, yeah. So they they all had experience, um, you know, as as under as uh, students, of course, but also as um, professors, teachers themselves. Um, what sort of particular challenges uh, were they facing as women? Um, what was there a lot of sexism? I mean, sometimes I think we just assume there was, but maybe there maybe that wasn't the case. I know they had uh, Murdoch and Foot shared a a, a mentor um, that was mm -hmm. very helpful to them. Uh, really sort of respected them as, as academics. So um, yeah, what was that like? Yeah, they were all uh, actually taught by this uh, same man, Donald McKinnon, uh, wildly eccentric uh, hmm. Scots theologian philosopher. Um, but he had the biggest impact on Foote and Murdoch, that's right. Uh, they had support all the way okay. along. Um, but in the early years of their professional career, I think the fact that women were a new presence on the scene in Oxford and in other universities left them searching for the way to get at this. They were on the outside looking in, not because anyone was scornful of them as women, but because there were these patterns that were established of where and how people socialize, mm -hmm. of the expectations about domestic life. 
and the ways of conducting yourself uh, in uh, professional circles. And all of those had been unconsciously calibrated for groups of men. Mm -hmm. And it, this could sometimes be as simple as uh, a male professor would invite out his junior male colleagues for drinks and conversation or for a uh, Saturday morning session, as Jay Austin uh, frequently did, of uh, tearing into some ideas. And they, I think, wouldn't think of their women colleagues for years and years and years. Groups of men have been getting together like this and mm -hmm. there had never been women. And, you know, I can't reach into their heads and know whether it even occurred to them, oh, should we invite, should we not invite? But uh, in practice, it was an exclusionary environment, not, I think, because people were going around thinking really denigrating thoughts about their women colleagues. I've seen letters of reference uh, that uh, some of the leading professors at Oxford uh, wrote uh, for my subjects and about my subjects where they are plainly very impressed with them, but they don't always invite them. They don't always include them. They conduct life without them without thinking about what the effect of that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um... We can maybe talk a little bit more about this when uh, we talk about Midgley, but uh, I was, I, I'll be interested to see if you think what you think of this, but it does seem to me that the fact, you know, whether it was, you know, on quote unquote on purpose or not, but the fact that there were such different lived experiences for men and women, these different spheres that maybe that as a woman, they had to think a little more practically sometimes, like they didn't really have the luxury of spending all this time in these, um, you know, erudite academic spaces, because I mean, and maybe uh, Anne's back, how many children did she have? Nine or something? Seven. I mean, seven. Okay. So she had, she had a lot of, a lot of, a lot of kids to get back to. Um, and uh, they all had sort of a, maybe different uh, concerns that, um, no, not that men didn't have, but that certainly uh, affected them differently. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll give you another example of this, that it's yeah. it's such a bachelor's university. <laughs> Even uh, to this day, yeah. I hear from some friends uh, that it is, uh, that it was expected that late afternoon and evening engagements would be part of the social and intellectual calendar. Mm -hmm. And so if you had responsibilities that conflicted with that, the whole social intellectual scene of the university is set up in terms that made sense in the 19th century when all of the faculty were these unmarried men. Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, so just to, to, to get into a little more of the specifics um, for people, maybe maybe some people have heard of one or two of them. I, I wasn't, um, uh, once you brought up that Philippa Foote was responsible for the trolley experiment idea, I was like, oh, that's her. So uh -huh. uh, a lot of times like ideas would come up and I realized I had encountered them. I didn't really realize it was uh, these philosophers who were the ones uh, who, who brought them forth. But for those not familiar with them, maybe we can just do a brief um, introduction to each of them. Uh, and I'll just go in the order in which they are presented in the title of the book. So um, can you just tell us a little bit, um, just a couple sentences about Elizabeth Anscombe? Sure. A couple of sentences. Elizabeth I know Anscombe. it's hard. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was expecting the question. So mm -hmm. she's a zealous Catholic convert and, as we've said, mother of seven, converts as a teenager to the horror of her respectable Anglican, but kind of nothing at all, parents. 
and the most fiercely and intimidatingly brilliant of the four, the one that the other three all looked to in a bit of awe, combative, unconventional, uh, scornful, indeed, mm. of conventions if she didn't see the point. Okay, I like that. Um, okay, so how about Philippa Foot? Philippa Foot could seem like Anscombe's antithesis. She's the granddaughter of U.S. President Grover Cleveland. She's raised in enormous privilege in North Yorkshire. She wasn't expected to go to university at all. She was discouraged from going to university by her parents who thought of it as common beneath her class. But her whole life long, she was in flight from this privileged world that she grew up in and didn't like very much. Nevertheless, she remains, even as a professional philosopher, the most respectable, the most respected, the most accepted within uh, Oxford circles. She knows how to carry herself, even when she stops being about being a member of a social elite. Mm -hmm. And she was really the one who sort of, uh, if I'm remembering, sort of stayed with the academy sort of through her she did. life. Yeah. Um, Okay, and uh, someone who didn't stay with the Academy, sort of dropped in and out, was um, Mary Midgley. How would you introduce her to us? Mm -hmm. Midgley, from her childhood, she described herself as hating dolls and wanting to go down to a pond or a forest and watch the newts and the mice. Mm -hmm. uh, she was zoophilic uh, from her childhood. And she was very interested in philosophy, particularly in philosophy that enabled her to integrate different bodies of knowledge. She wanted to connect psychology and biology and ethics. She steps away from the academy during the 1950s and early 1960s while her boys are growing up. But that whole time is reading new studies of animal behavior and being deeply affected by these. And so when she comes back to the academy, she has stored up all of this background that she is working to bring together with philosophical ethics with some really uh, powerful effects. She publishes the first of her 16 books at uh, age 58, I think. Mm, yeah, yeah, that was something very interesting too when I, when I learned that uh, she really just sort of seemed like she'd just been building up all these ideas like her whole life and then they just sort of were released into this torrent mm -hmm. of... Uh, of energy uh, later in life. So that was very She's also, uh, she's very much the most uh, public intellectual mm -hmm. of the four of them. She is modestly famous, infamous for a uh, uh, acerbic exchange we had, she had with Richard Dawkins uh, mm -hmm. at the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s, um, and published regularly in The Guardian, broadcast on the BBC, was always out in public bringing her ideas to a larger audience. Interesting. So um, I guess somewhat, I mean, a very different person, but Iris Murdoch also was um, uh, just sort of dabbling in other ideas, other um, uh, modes of looking at the world. I mean, she, she's, she's a novelist. Uh, I, I think a lot of people know her that way um, more as a philosopher, although it seems like, I think she, she denied it, but it seems like she was working through a lot of her philosophic ideas through her novels. But um, She's, she's very a very interesting person, too. So how would you introduce her to us? Oh, Murdoch is a spiritual seeker. Uh, 
her whole life she was dissatisfied not only with whatever she'd come to philosophically but seemingly whatever she'd come to religiously uh at that point always on a quest um she is say a novelist and could never leave philosophy alone even after she left the academy in the 1960s uh kept accepting lectures uh, lecture invitations and doing really interesting work in these contexts. But she, in a way that's sad to me, internalized the standards of 1950s Oxford as to what mm. real philosophy, respectable philosophy was, this picking away the minutia of linguistic usage. And she knew she didn't do that. Uh, she was a constructor of large imaginative uh, pictures and metaphors of our relation to the world and to one another. And that wasn't in vogue at all uh, mm. in the center of her career. And she would run herself down consequently as a philosopher, but she was a person of tremendous insight and instincts who inspired her friends uh, with the questions she asked with the suggestions that she put forward. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it seems to me she was also, uh, I'm going to misquote it, you, you can correct me, but it's it's this this famous quote of hers that human beings uh, make pictures of themselves and then try to become like the, the pictures they make. Yeah, um, human so beings come to resemble the pictures, yeah. Right, so I, I, I loved that idea, especially in an age of so much image making in different ways, but um, her ideas seemed so uh, relational, sort of how we look at one another um, and then how how that impacts us. Um, and I was also very interested in her ideas of attention, which I think were inspired by Simone Vale a lot. But um, yes. that uh, yes. that idea of like, we can we can really, really focus on, on another person or another idea and that that can actually like shift our understanding and our, our um, experience of that. Um, so she seemed much more relational than the uh, the others, maybe. Is, is that fair to say, or? I don't know. I mean, she was a person of many intense mm -hmm. relationships, uh, platonic and sexual. Uh, and yeah. maybe my favorite uh, little anecdote about Iris Murdoch is after her career as a novelist exploded um, and she became one of the most uh, watched novelists of uh, the second half of the 20th century, she would get voluminous fan mail and would spend hours every day writing back to people by hand. Mm -hmm. And people who received these letters, even just one or two of them, talk about how personal they were, how uh, much she made each person she corresponded with feel at the center of her attention, even just for a moment. Mm. She was magnetic to others and she was interested in everyone. Philippa Foote asked her once, do you ever get bored with people? Uh, is there anyone <laughs> who's ever bored you? And she says, no, never, no one. Hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's what, what I'm trying to get, a, get at is that she just was so intensely interested in people and, uh, mm -hmm. and they seem to have impacted her um, so deeply. Whereas you see somebody like Anscombe sort of on this, uh, she's just, she's uh, such a, a pillar for the truth and, uh, and and sort of wants to be, wants to be an unshakable in that way. Uh, whereas I think Murdoch was much more open to, uh, you know, what her experiences were, were teaching her. And maybe that's why she, she remained uh, such a seeker in so many ways. Mm -hmm. But um, 
And just one more question about Murdoch. Um, as an artist, in a way that the others maybe were not, what was the role of art? How did she view art as, um, what was the role in human life? Was it a, a redemptive thing? Was it just a way to, what, what was the role of art? Oh, it's a great question. And not one that people have been asking me. Uh, it's really a piece with her ethical ideas that you've already alluded to about becoming good by being as attentively as attentive as possible to the truth of other people to become aware of them as separate from us not assimilating others to ourselves in our minds learning to see lovingly and truly mm -hmm. uh, the world around us the people around us uh, something i think she achieved in her own personal life, as well as put forward in her writing as an ideal. But this is how she thought of art too. Uh, in one of her essays, uh, she, she quotes someone, uh, I'm forgetting who now, uh, writing about Cezanne. And she says, Cezanne didn't paint, I like it. Cezanne painted, there it is. Mm. <laughs> Trying to see attentively exactly what's in front of you without allowing your preoccupations and fantasies to cover it over, to be something you have to see it through. Mm -hmm. um, she particularly praised artists who were able to unself themselves, to not try to conform their subjects, uh, literary or visual or uh, musical, who didn't try to conform their subjects uh, to their own preoccupations and obsessions to make them over into their own image, to make them do work for them. Instead, who would, in a sense, release them, let them go, just watch them and describe them with a kind of loving detachment. Mm, she's starting to sound like a mystic. I like it. Um, so, so thinking of, uh, you know, all these women so different, um, but here they are grappling with, uh, you know, the Holocaust basically, but I mean, so many ongoing atrocities of the 20th century. Um, and basically if I'm understanding it right, I mean, sort of in the academic circles that were going on at the time, it was actually very hard to say something like the Holocaust was wrong. Like, like because if we all have a truly relativistic understanding of the world, well, maybe it was wrong for in this time by this standard of ethics, et cetera, et cetera. But it it seems like um, they, these women were trying to talk about this in a more transcendent way, again, with all of them being interested in capital T truth uh, that would sort of transcend the moment. Uh, and it seems like they drew on Aristotle, virtue ethics, sort of idea of that there is a way that is not just out of thin air, that there is sort of a, a coherent way that human beings can live a good life. And by this, we can also view events like the Holocaust as wrong uh, in all ages and all times. But could you just expound on that a little bit um, and uh, just how they were, were grappling with an event like this in an age of relativism? Yeah, again, the dogma that they find themselves uh, confronting uh, because it had established itself uh, by the time uh, they were university age, was that the world is value-free, the world is valueless, and we human creatures find ourselves thrown into uh, this valueless world, but being 
unable to avoid projecting our likes and dislikes, uh, longings and hopes onto it, and then pretending, living as if uh, there's something more objective mm. uh, about our judgments. And the consequence of this, of saying that statements about ethics are statements about one's own preferences uh, is that there is no deciding except each individual for her or himself between the preferences, uh, the chosen projects of Hitler or Stalin or Franco uh, and those who resist them. And there's so much political ferment, so much violence uh, going on in the 1930s and uh, 1940s in this formative period for these women. And Philippa Foote, I think particularly, was the one who said, this just can't be right. There's got to be something wrong with this view. It took her a very long time to figure out what she wanted to say back to it. Uh, but she had the courage of her conviction that there's got to be something better to say. That interests me uh, almost as much as the ideas that they came up with drawing on Aristotle and others. And I could say mm -hmm. about those in a minute, but this willingness to say, I don't know how to respond yet. I don't know what exactly is wrong with that or what the compelling way of framing a response to this dogma is, but I am going to remain on a quest to say something more satisfying than that. Because any huge intellectual achievement seems to me, if, it's, if it involves rebellion against a taken mm -hmm. for granted point of view, has to start with that not yet seeing what needs to be said, but seeing that something needs to be said. And they have that, I think, outsider's ability to say, we're not satisfied yet. We're not going to conform to this. We're going to keep working away at possible alternatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, yeah. What, they, what they do finally come up with, uh, it, they have differences among them in terms of the philosophers that they find most inspiring. Murdoch looks a great deal to Plato. Uh, but all of them say, we need to attend to the kind of animals that we are, the kind of creatures that we are, and the needs of creatures like ourselves, and think about human ethics in terms of the peculiarities of human life. And then we can get a grounding. This is not all just arbitrary projection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I also just admire, uh, like you, just the idea that um, that that it's okay to uh, sort of encounter some ideas and say, I don't quite have uh, the the formulated response yet, but I know there needs to be one because this this can't be this can't be right. Um, so I, I admire all of them for uh, for engaging with those ideas. Uh, so so uh, along those lines, um, in the area of uh, sort of the specificity of, of their experiences. Um, Midgley especially focused on, and I, I mean, it's sort of a, a controversial thing to say now in some, in some ways, but that, that women um, in particular, 
had a different experience than men and that that would shape their approach to philosophy and to life. Um, and this seems to be related to her ideas about human beings as, as animals, as, um, mm -hmm. as, uh, as human animals who, who, who relate to, to their world in a, in a biological way uh, that affects the way they think about things. Um, can you just expand on this a little bit? Yeah, she uh, was openly exploratory about this, uh, saying, I, uh, I, I think this is what I'm seeing. Um, but she said, we're a sexually dimorphic uh, species and uh, women have uh, tendencies as a population that are different from the tendencies of men. Her take on this, uh, rightly or wrongly, is that women are better at spreading their attention Mm -hmm. uh, across multiple tasks and concerns at the same time. And men tend more toward a kind of laser-eyed uh, uh, specialization. And uh, she saw this in herself and her own philosopher husband, Jeffrey Midgley. Um, and uh, she saw it in other figures uh, that she looked at in the history of literature and the history of philosophy. Uh, she said, Virginia Woolf is wonderful because she is attentive to all of the surface details of the worlds that she's describing and never tries to reduce them to a tidy sameness. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, she thought of this as a difference. Of course, as a woman, as a mother herself, she felt like this was indispensable to her later philosophizing that the work she did on uh, our animal nature, she said, I mean, I don't know if this is to do with her as a woman, but it certainly uh, was something that uh, as a woman in that time and place, she was attending closely to watching her boys grow up, fed her all kinds of ideas mm -hmm. about uh, what human beings are like when you watch them as children, when you don't, forget that we all start as children and this is um this is with us still as where we came from mm -hmm. yeah my, my baby is 10 months old and uh i'm very much rediscovering a lot of things through her uh just uh yeah it, it's fascinating i'm sure i'm going to continue to learn so much um just as she discovers the world i'm definitely discovering along with her so i could i could definitely see how that would influence her um i was also i just wanted to mention i just love that uh anscombe said this mother of seven she said dirt doesn't matter i don't know if i want to model quite her, <laughs> her mothering style but i mean she she uh I, it sounds like these kids were sort of uh running running wild and she was off doing philosophy uh there was one anecdote. I think she she was uh, hosting like a seminar, like the day after she gave birth or something. Like that. Yes. <laughs> um, so I mean, these women certainly were were juggling, uh, to say the least, and um, that idea of spreading attention and uh, being able to focus on many different things uh, seems seems very relevant. Um, so. Uh, I think what's interesting when, when I read about sort of what was going on at the time, how people, how the academy and sort of the culture at large was viewing things, um, I wonder how much has changed. I wonder, are we still in a, in a completely uh, re relativist um, understanding? Is, are these ideas, um, how, how have they, they taken shape? How are they being discussed today in academic circles? How are they influencing culture? Um, yeah, what's what's going on today? Uh, read these ideas and uh, and the women who brought them forth. 
Good question. I think it would have been tidy and neat and pleased some of the people at Oxford University Press if I had been able to say that the ideas these women introduced and developed uh, building on one another's work carried all before them and now all has changed. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not true. And it's the kind of thing that maybe has a harder time being true than ever in the contemporary academy. Um, when you make your name, you make your path to tenure by saying something that's a little different from what anybody else uh, is saying. It's culture of disagreement, which can be fruitful, uh, but uh, has its downsides too. But what they do is they break the sense of inevitability of the old dogma and they clearly and compellingly present an alternative to it. And so you have a lot of people working out projects that are inspired uh, by the work that they did. They, um, particularly Anscombe and Foote, who stayed at Oxford, uh, and Anscombe later at Cambridge, and Foote later at various universities in the United States, they inspire and mentor a whole generation of men, but a lot of women uh, who go into philosophy. But their ideas and ethics have a substantial hearing and a number of defenders now. But that old dogma about facts and values, it was not just something that you know, a few thought leaders had said in the early 20th century and became faddish. It's grounded in deep assumptions about science and the world that go further back than the 20th century. And so it's not a surprise to me um, on reflection that we don't just shake that off or banish that entirely. The thought dies very hard that we are these lonely abandoned creatures in a value-free world. But, uh, well, maybe I'll just ask you here, um, you know, what you know, just, you kind of just said this, but what do you think, um, you know, people t pick up this book, they, they, they encounter these, these women and their ideas and, uh, and they're reflecting on the current state of things. What do you hope their main sort of takeaway is, uh, from, from reading the book? There's an idea in Alan Jacobs book, how to think, which I recommend to anyone that, we never really think for ourselves. It's such a cliche of uh, late modern Western culture. You gotta think for yourself. And Jacob says, no, we think with others, which doesn't mean that we don't contribute distinctively to those conversations, that we don't help others out, that we can only repeat what we've heard, but our thought is always dialogic. Mm. And in addition to my hoping that people who maybe take for granted the late modern dogma, who think that uh, the only thing I can think is that ethics is unreal and subjective and that we make this up as we go along, I hope reading about these women's ideas breaks the sense of inevitability for some readers of that dogma. Mm -hmm. But also, I think it's inspiring to read about people who thrashed around a lot in their 20s and 30s figuring out what they wanted to say, but had one another to talk with, to test their ideas with, 
and to work toward the things that they dimly saw they aspired to see better than they did. Mm -hmm. I think uh, there's a model here of intellectually productive friendship uh, that um, I think can inspire people in a lot of different fields. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that sort of comes back to your initial thoughts of um, this also just being the story of an ongoing uh, intellectual friendship that that shaped them them all in, uh, in in profound ways, and that that in and of itself is is interesting and important, and that's something hopefully a lot of us can can model as we uh, as we as we seek to explore these ideas, and um, and also that they were so different that they they came from different backgrounds, that they sort of led extremely different lives, but they they had such a profound uh, respect for each other as they developed these ideas. I really admire that. Um, well, I could, I could keep talking to you about this, but I think I should wrap up and, uh, I just do want to recommend this book so much. Uh, the women are up to something, how Elizabeth Anscombe, Philip Foote, Mary Midgley and Iris Murdoch revolutionized ethics. Um, Ben, where should we look? Uh, maybe if we don't want to get from Amazon or something like that, where should we, where, where should we look to get the book? You can get it on a bookshop, uh, uh, as well as on Amazon and bookshop is, uh, an affiliation of lots and lots of uh, private uh, bookstores uh, collaborating together to give themselves a platform uh, a bit like Amazon. Um, of course, direct from Oxford University Press uh, works too. Mm -hmm. I, I think I did, or just to be fully transparent, I think I got this from Amazon, but I do always like to, <laughs> I like to at least offer the alternative. So um, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me today. I really enjoyed it. Oh, this was a delight. Thanks for having me on. So I hope you enjoyed my discussion there with Benjamin Lipscomb. Uh, so glad that he came on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. And I do really encourage you to go out and uh, and get the book. The women are up to something. It's very readable. Um, I, I know we were discussing sort of some broad uh, and sometimes dense philosophical ideas, but it's an it's an incredibly readable book. And um, it's it, it really inspires me. It makes me want to go uh, read more uh, of, of the primary works and biographies and and uh, in, in the case of Murdoch, the novels of, of these individual women. It's sort of like a wonderful introduction to to this this wonderful world of, of, uh, of philosophical ideas that uh, that I didn't know about. I was just so excited to see see this group of intellectuals uh, who are women in the mid-century, mid you know, um, really contributing in such a, a serious way and that they're ideas are um, being brought to light by by uh, Ben and by others is, is just a wonderful thing. So I hope you enjoyed that. I did want to end the episode with um, with one more recommendation, which is that uh, which is a, another podcast episode actually of um, of a podcast called On Being, which is which is one that I've always really enjoyed hosted by Krista Tippett. But they shared recently on their social media uh, an old old interview of theirs. I think they said it was their most popular interview ever uh, with the the poet and theologian uh, John O'Donohue. Uh, he has this wonderful Irish brogue, uh, just beautiful ideas, beautiful poetry, um, just so convicting and healing and and wonderful. Just a wonderful discussion. Uh, they they talk about um, Celtic music in a way that resonates with me. You all know, you all know I love love Celtic music, and they they really I think got a bit to the 
the heart of, of what is so beautiful about it, but also just about the idea of beauty in general. He, he, he describes God, um, he's talking about, um, uh, about the, the sort of wild landscape of, of Western Ireland where he's from, and he says it's, it's like a surrealist painter, uh, you know, creating those rag, ragged, rugged cliff sides. Um, it just, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful conversation. I'm going to put it in the show notes, and I'm also going to end here with some poetry of John O'Donohue. Uh, I will read one and then I will let him, uh, I, I, I have, have some audio here of him, him reading one of his poems. So I will read one of his poems first and then let him end the episode for us. So this is a poem, um, a, a blessing, uh, called, uh, a blessing for one who is exhausted. And I don't know about you, but, um, recently I've been very exhausted. Uh, January was just really, really hard. It was cold and long and it just, just a tough month. Um, I'm recording this in mid February and today was a beautiful sunny day. And, uh, so, and some other things are just coming together. Uh, uh, things are getting better. Spring is coming, but I, I think we could all all use all use a blessing. I feel exhausted this time of year. We're we're tired, you know. That the holidays are over. We're just sort of waiting for spring. So I hope that this poem speaks to you at the right time. A blessing for one who is exhausted by John O'Donohue. When the rhythm of the heart becomes hectic, time takes on the strain until it breaks. Then all the unattended stress falls in on the mind like endless increasing weight. The light in the mind becomes dim. Things you could take in your stride before now become laborsome events of will. Weariness invades your spirit. Gravity begins falling inside you, dragging down every bone. The tide you never valued has gone out, and you are marooned on unsure ground. Something within you has closed down, and you cannot push yourself back to life. You have been forced to enter empty time. The desire that drove you has relinquished. There is nothing else to do now but rest, and patiently learn to receive the self you have forsaken in the rush of days. At first your thinking will darken, and sadness take over like listless weather. The flow of unswept teach will frighten you. You have traveled too far over false ground. Now your soul has come to take you back. Take refuge in your senses. Open up to all the small miracles you rushed through. Become inclined to watch the way of rain when it falls slow and free. Imitate the habit of twilight, taking time to open the well of color that fostered the brightness of day. Draw alongside the silence of stone until its calmness can claim you. Be excessively gentle with yourself. Stay clear of those vexed in spirit. Learn to linger around someone of ease who feels they have all the time in the world. Gradually, you will return to yourself, having learned a new respect for your heart and the joy that dwells far within slow time. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the grey window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colours, indigo, red, green and azure blue come to awaken in you 
a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the corrock of thought and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. 